0: Welcome, B2B startups, changeups, scaleups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Ty Roberts, welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here.
0: So, I mean, we've known each other a long time you've been a, a cto for for uh over 30 years uh you were one of the members of the team that built QuickTime. um you were founder of ion music that became uh cddb that became grace note you stayed with that through uh to the sale to sony and then you became you know cto at universal music group and now you're an advisor to you know a number of um Music streaming services, some automotive OEMs, some metadata and investment groups, and uh, so I, I appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with us. Uh, today's discussion is going to be a CTO persona deep dive, so let's start. <laughs> if you would give us a little bit about the day in the life of a CTO.
1: Okay, well that's a that's a very great topic. Uh, uh, I uh, I guess I could say this the. The role of a CTO as I look at it is to be a little bit of an ombudsman across the different aspects of technology. So that means you have to be able to do technology and business, you have to be able to do hardcore technology development itself, a little bit of R&D, maybe some intellectual property and patents. Um, and so really, you've got to be the guy that helps the technology in the business and then all of the departments of the business that it touches. Um The only area that I didn't spend a lot of time in is in, I'll call it what is the traditional CIO role, you know, managing email servers and the internal systems for, you know, running the business and insurance and finance. That was not my area of expertise. I was more on the product side where I focused on data and technology to create new kinds of products around entertainment.
0: So, So you're saying a CTO is sort of part politician, part technologist.
1: Yeah, it's a really great job role, and, the, and it really could be useful to the, to the CEO and the head of sales or um, uh, in the business realm. And the reason for that is is that there's kind of a, a challenge that CEOs have, which is that when they enter the room, they're the ultimate authority and decision maker for deals and for business proposals. So, unfortunately... When the CEO shows up, the other CEO shows up, and there's not a great opportunity uh, usually for the CEOs to really get hands in on uh, the early stages of a deal because it's like the deal makers there. They kind of have to have the deal formed by others and then brought to them, and then they can work out some of the bigger details. But it's uh, a little bit disabling to some degree in the early stages when you don't know what the customer wants or you don't. You're talking about something new to do. So the CTO is a little bit different. I can get in there. I can always call on the other CTO of the company. And then it's a very interesting relationship, which is that, you know, if you're somebody like me that's creating products at my company and I want to sell it to the other company, I've got to convince them to work with me rather than build something themselves or maybe even convince them to enter the business area that I'm promoting. They may not even be in that business area yet or be solving the problem with the kinds of things I'm offering. So uh, uh, this is a great entry and I'm a great support for the sales team let's call it because they often can't you know reimagine the technology and the customers uh, uh, use cases let's call it as uh, passively as I can so so I that's kind of the role I always played, which is I was an outward CTO and then inside the company I would come back in and say okay what we really need to do is drive the products in these directions to this is what I'm hearing out in the field and this is uh, we should look into this and then I'd leave my actually my staff would you know invent and create the products and you know I tried to not tell them exactly what to do I more try to tell them what the problems were to solve and then let them figure out how to solve them. so
0: um, I don't know if you can generalize but when two when you get on the phone with another CTO of another company to try to convince them to either adopt or uh, you know agree to work with you collaboratively on some project Is there any sort of rubric that guides that conversation or is it totally ad hoc?
1: No, it's, it's a pretty simple logic. Um, so the good news about technology companies is I haven't met a company yet where there's just like tons of engineering guys sitting around with nothing to do. Usually most engineering departments and most companies have been around for a while. The staff is overwhelmed with even just maintaining and enhancing and, finishing the commitments to the things that they've already sold, promised, or want to deliver to customers. So in other words, they're already like running at 110%. And so the opportunity is that you go to the company and you say, Hey, there's this new business area where they're here to talk to you about. The CEO of the business is always interested in expanding the business into new business areas because he always wants additional revenue. He's kind of got his guys delivering the current revenue. So so, you know, you kind of sell the CEO on a new business area. And then the CTO is, well, I could love to go in that business area, but I can't, I have no resources to do it. So you create the demand with the CEO and then you convince the CTO that he can work with your company on an outsourced basis or on a licensing basis to take your technology, allowing him to get into this new market. And, uh, uh, and so it's that kind of game. And he could do it himself. But oftentimes what will happen then is that most experienced CTOs know that they're busy, but if they were to get given the resources, so they go to the CEO and say, give me a couple million dollars. The problem is is that then there's the time to market. So if I have the thing already kind of ready to go, even if he was to get the money, he's a year out or two years out from having it to be used. So, you know, it's a tricky bit. You have to get this person to trust you. Your company has to have an excellent reputation for delivering products and and, you know, also to some degree being flexible to, to take those products and turn them into really what the customer needs because, you know, very few software solutions off the shelf are exactly what the customer needs.
2: This is the Internet, and it's filled with unencrypted data. Data that can be targeted by all kinds of eavesdroppers. All I need is Wi-Fi
1: and some software and... I can see everything you're up to.
2: The EFF has been protecting your privacy online for over 25 years. And now, their goal is to encrypt the web, the whole thing. Switch every site from insecure HTTP to secure HTTPS. That S makes all the difference. It's for secure. The lock lets you know your session is safe. Here's the problem. Not every site supports encryption yet but the EFF has you covered with two powerful tools. The first is HTTPS Everywhere. It's a plugin for browsers like Chrome and Firefox. It encrypts your communication with most major websites, so they can't spy on it. The second tool is CertBot. If you run your own site, you can easily secure it with an SSL certificate. That used to be a huge, expensive hassle, but CertBot simplifies and automates the whole thing and it costs zero dollars. And that's just the beginning. Find out all the ways the EFF is protecting your rights online at EFF.org. Stay safe out there.
0: So it's interesting, you know, obviously, there's not enough capacity to uh, modernize businesses as quickly as they'd like to be modernized. And, um, you know, the engineering department is always running at 110. I think that's probably kind. It's probably, you know, 150%. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, but given that, you know, technology uh, failure rates are so frickin' high, often because we can't imagine how things fit together before we start building, um, what sort of personality traits make for a great CTO? Like, how do you handle that pressure?
1: You have to be confident, creative, and realistic. Because you can't go in and say promise the world and the other guy's going to know that you can, can't deliver it. So you have to have, use your expertise. So, you know, often I say this, which is, you know, how long does it take to develop software? Longer than you can imagine and then yet longer. <laughs> so, so that's a problem because, because you know, the, the CEO and the CFO need the product to get delivered and there's this kind of unpredictability to completion of software. In my 30 years, the number of projects that have been completed on time, uh, quite frankly, with the original scope of the project, I think is zero. Um, I think about the best I've been able to do is about time and a half with modifying the scope. And that's, a, you know, that's, a really, uh, that's doing pretty well. A lot of projects are two times or three times, take two or three times longer than they originally expect, this is normal for, I think, all engineering. I mean, you know, in building buildings or building bridges, you know, this is I, those things are pretty hard for those things to finish on time too. And so it's the nature of, especially the nature of the kind of programming or things you might do, it's like when you rebuild a house, you tear the walls down and you see all this stuff you didn't know was wrong that you have to fix first and you didn't know about it. So in software… What about this
0: concept of, like, lean, lean engineering, lean manufacturing – uh, does that help is that is that legitimate yeah
1: it really helps um, Eric lean engineering really helps the employees and the engineers because what you do really is you're you're basically going in sprints so rather than saying we are building the Empire State Building you're like okay we're gonna build the foundation <laughs> that's all we're gonna do don't worry about the rest of the building we're just gonna work on the foundation right now and we break the problems into more manageable steps and, and once the product is actually developed, then you break the new features and the evolution of the product into more frequent steps. And modern day software is in a continuous release cycle. So you might be pushing a new release of your software. You guys can see often they do that with the iPhone. They're pushing a new release of the software, you know, once every couple of weeks, once a month. And uh, that's really different than the old world of once a year. And maybe you only do a major release once a year, but you do all these incremental releases. And really what that does is it allows for a variable development cycle and the features that are uh, to get done quicker, and also it's just more manageable for the staff. They can be more flexible. So that's a really important thing.
0: I've also seen a lot of products, uh, technology products, come out that have done really well. They're actually not that great, but they have really
1: good marketing. Yeah. well, one thing like I would an say example about this also which is you don't have to make the ultimate uh, uh, Swiss Army knife tool you need them the basic functionality of the Swiss Army knife probably is you know to cut and so you should just have that first so simplifying the feature set is it's tough because you know engineers and creative people always want to add all kinds of bells and whistles to the to the product and it's really tough to make that first cut of what the simplest thing and I've had to learn this I am a Definitely a bell and whistle guy myself, but as I've gotten older and more experienced, I've realized, hey, there's going to be time for that. If you don't get the first product out the door and get consumers using it, and also when you get feedback from real consumers or real customers who are using your your systems, they tell you what they really need, but they usually can only do that when they're informed of what it actually does. (laughs) So the theoretical versus the practical comes after they start using it
0: from from a buyer's perspective what motivates a CTO
1: um well they're looking the first of all there's there's a couple different factors one is there might be unique expertise or unique capabilities within their staff and things that are core to their business that only they can do okay so very hard for somebody else to come in there and work on stuff that's their core thing that only they can do okay great but then there's always lots of other tasks or things that are more standardized across the industry that they don't need to do. Uh, they could, but they don't need to do. They should focus their staff on the unique value proposition, things that, that build the most value in the company. Then they can look at outsourcing or licensing from third parties. Now, if I'm a guy inside of the company, that's what I'm also thinking as well. What can I, What do my guys really need to do that are in the company? Uh, and then what do what my guys and gals need to do that are external? And then is there portions of the software development platform I use licensed that already exists? And uh, uh, any time I can license something, there's a cost associated with it, but there's also less risk, and there's a fixed cost in a certain way where I can know what I'm going to get and how much it's going to cost, which is when I build myself, it's harder for me to predict. That.
0: What are some common KPIs that CTOs are measured against?
1: Uh, well, uh, you know, in the network service department, it really has to, there's the most important one really is that the system has to work and be up and running. <laughs> the second most important these days is actually security. So uh, typically these systems need good data. These days there's all kinds of hacker guys out there hacking all the time, so... Security better be one of the, the things you think about first. And by the way, in the old days of the Internet, that was not top of mind because people didn't even know how to use the Internet. So it wasn't like today where really constantly people are banging on your network seeing what they can get out of it. So security would be next. And So the next thing is, okay, performance uh, of the system, how efficient is the system running? And in the software development process, it's it's really how Close. are you making the milestones and then how are the costs you know if you have this distributed development structure where you have internal people uh, contractors license software and it's a mix of that stuff how is the, how are you managing your budget and how are you able to predict the budget in advance uh, and how were you able to work with the CFO you know like the CFO would like to capitalize expenses when possible in terms of making the balance sheet uh, work as best it can for the business So how do you do stuff to make that possible, and how do you organize that? Um, I think the last part is when you're in the licensing business, um, uh, when you license software to other companies, how do you structure those business relationships so that as their usage goes up, you're getting properly compensated, but at the same time, the deals are structured in a a fairly easy-to-monitor way so that you can charge your customers appropriately, and you aren't, frankly, mischarging them, overcharging them, undercharging them. And so all of those things are factors that, that I, uh, I think they're measured by.
0: Any tips on capitalization strategy?
1: Uh, well, that's an interesting one. Um, you know, the, the, you know you're, you're basically, there's still a great opportunity for things that are, you know, kind of technically under R&D, where you can work on it. Essentially, if you're on a two-year project and you're developing all kinds of new technology... Uh, that can be capitalized until you deliver the product, and then you start, you know, basically writing down the, the R&D expenses. So, you know, that's that's important to have a separation between what's kind of a product in development and the product that's in production. You don't get that benefit when you're doing incremental engineering on just updating and maintaining the product that you have. So, uh, this actual incremental development process actually makes it a little harder to track. So, let's say the guy's doing a little bit of work to maintain the product and a little bit of new work, which would be considered R&D, how do you figure out what that is? So, you know, uh, one of the things that's a big challenge in all software companies is getting engineers to track the usage of their time so that it can be properly accounted. Engineers hate the idea of time cards, and they don't work in a way that's, you know, it, in their mind it's very hard for them, like, okay, we don't work 10 minutes on this and 12 minutes on this. I work on 30 things today, and of that, some of these things help this thing, and some of these things help this other problem. But that is a really important discipline to have and to develop in the company at the beginning that there's, you know, a good connection between the engineering work and the finance department in a way using tools that are uh, non-intrusive to the engineers and processes. It's, it's a huge area of uh, contention frequently.
0: I would imagine um, that an engineer who's solving a complex code problem uh, would do that much more effectively if they could sustain their attention on that one problem for an extended period of time and really work deeply. Uh, but we're in this environment now where we're distracted all the time, you know, and everyone expects a quick response either via IM or via um, email. Um, when you're managing a group of people who need to be able to devote blocks of um, time without distractions to solving problems, Uh, Any tips for helping manage that, either as a manager um, who is responsible for resources uh, that are going to have to answer questions to other people in the organization, or as an individual who has to work deeply and sort of block all these uh, instant messaging distractions out of their field of view so that they can concentrate?
1: Yeah, it is a big challenge because... um, As we were discussing, most engineering teams are 150% committed, okay? So let's divide the engineering team up, and you're really going to have the majority of the engineering team is going to probably be working on the current customer products, the current customer commitments, and the current feature set. And so they're really not going to take on anything new. They're going to be overloaded with doing what they're doing. If you can, you create a couple uh, fire teams, I'll call it, that are separate from that, which are which are not on the main product development line, but they remain available to pursue new initiatives, to do some custom work, to basically firefight where it's needed. And sometimes there's an emergency. Quite frankly, sometimes the system breaks down or there's a major problem that's discovered, and then you got to throw everybody on it for a little while. And so this is a constant challenge, which is to keep the main herd going while you rustle the, uh, uh, cattle that have run off, uh, uh, get them back into the herd. And, and so you really have to divide that up a little bit. The second thing is a new product initiative you have to create a separate group that doesn't have the firefights going on. It's very hard because when the fire's burning, you know, you want to throw all your best people on it, but some of your best people are overworking on something new, which isn't going to do much for you for the current client who's actually paying you, you know, and has a problem. So it's a really tough discipline to leave those guys off the side to manage with what you've got that's available to not stop completely the work on the new products, which you need to generate revenue in the future. It's a, it's a tough one. It's, it's an even tougher one to manage the people themselves. Because, uh, well, this is an example, you know, when I was doing early work, you know, with Apple, stuff like that, you know, I was working on the Apple II. You know, I had the Apple II stuff. My friends were in the Apple II group and over in a completely separate building, Steve Jobs had the Macintosh team. They had you know fridge full of juice they had a pirate flag on their building they didn't have to worry about you know m- keeping the Apple II running or the Lisa running they kept they could work on the Mac separately and there was some jealousy between the I'll call it the old product teams and the new product team and this happens in companies where you've got something like this you know because the pressures off a little bit the new product teams because they have you know a fairly long time frame where the guys who are in the trenches are still battling the war and so that's a, that's a personnel management issue, and the question is how do, you, how do you take some of the guys who are some of your best guys off of the firefight that's going on on a daily basis and put them into the new product team every, where they can, quite frankly, learn new skills or refresh themselves just to be able to work on something new. And uh, that's a whole management uh, process to really to keep them happy and to also get the best work out of them and to make them the most productive, You've got to, you know, take your guys off the front line and give them some R&R. But, you know, that could be a combination of getting to work on something new or something in R&D. I remember
0: running into you once on the floor at one of the big Vegas uh, trade shows. And uh, I don't remember. I I think I pitched you on some uh, company I was working with. And you clearly had your armor on, man, because it was coming at you from all angles. And uh, I, I've got to imagine you know if you're a CTO everyone wants a piece you all the time I mean you're just getting pitches constantly yes so, so was well, like be,
1: yeah you would be the big you trust, buyer of- man
0: like like of all the people that come at you are there some people that are like oh wait a minute I got to listen to this guy
1: because
0: or are there certain organizations that say oh we're working with this uh, professional uh, organization or working with this client, um, what information is it that you might hear when you're getting pitched that would immediately elevate your consideration? Is there anything?
1: Um, yeah, I guess so. CES is a perfect example. You know, at that show, I was uh, you know uh, in the Grace note days when I was a Grace note we ended up with a grace note world where we essentially had a whole ballroom and all of our new products and all of our categories and their product leads for every category. We're talking about their products. And not only were all the potential customers coming, but all the potential partners and everybody else. And, you know, in my role there, I was the co-founder of the business and I was also the CTO and I was also running kind of the R&D group. So that resulted in, you know, needing to me just about everybody. So, you know, I had, to focus in on what was really interesting. What I was always looking for at CES, because it was at the beginning of the year, I had ideas for new initiatives that I wanted to pursue in the company. These were not public, because these are just ideas that I'd had. probably be thinking about them the previous year over the holiday break. What I was looking for were people who were already working in these areas that already had expertise and had built something or had something going that could accelerate my ideas and reduce the risk or help prove my case, because, you know, part of, of getting the CEO of the company to believe in something new is seeing it work, seeing something work like what I'm talking about. And so I was always looking for people who had something that was working, so not slides, something that was in the area that that was, I thought, was in advancing the industry in the case of music or something with entertainment. And I could, you know, A, give them a shot to work with a company, and be, my management team could see that this was the beginnings of a new direction uh, that we might want to pursue, and, and you know, this could, be, uh, could really be accomplished or achieved because they get a little confidence from seeing that, that there were people working in this area and that there was, this was going to be successful. So, you know, like I said, having something that was working and then having a compelling uh, individual, either a compelling technologist or a compelling business person, they could really state the case for why they were doing it and why they were doing it the way they were doing it. That was really important.
0: Talk to us about degrees of something working because in the world of Lean, something working could be, you know, a prototype, sketch prototype on an iPad or you yeah. could have, you know, something running on a production server something in development. And, and to what, to what um, extent were these different degree, would these different degrees Build or not build trust?
1: Well, okay. So this is really interesting because you know, sometime during the last, uh, you know, decade, hackathons actually got invented. Okay, you know, I mean, you know, I did hackathons twenty-five years ago, but this was like five guys staying there Friday night and getting the pizza and you know, a giant bag of chips, and we'd hang out and work on stuff. So this evolved into a more organized, formalized process. Uh, and I participated with uh, – uh, I have a, a friend who's uh, like the expert at creating hackathons. His name is Travis Lauren Dean, and he does the South by Southwest Hackathon and many others. And then he had a process, and what I realized in this was that you could uh, get a person who just had an idea, you could then associate with that person somebody with some engineering talent, somebody with some maybe user interface or graphic design talent, and then somebody that could create some content or create – Uh, some of the media or something to go with it and that was enough and these people within 24 hours they couldn't build any like really shippable piece of technology but what they could do is demonstrate enough of of the idea that you could see the potential and uh, uh, this was revolutionary for me because the kinds of things I worked on you know we'd like think of it we would make some slides we would think about how it should work we would then maybe make a very simple little prototype and then we would work like six months before we had anything that was even worth looking at. And so the idea that you could do this much more rapidly and evaluate 30 ideas, which then you could go to the next stage with either from a business perspective, testing out the business model or looking at more of a more elaborate demonstration. This has really changed how uh, people express their ideas now. And these hackathons things are all over the world and massive and, uh, uh, it's a great way, by the way, to find engineers for your company because they get to make something and be creative, and you get to see how they really think in, in action, and you get to see how they work with others. And uh, it's a fantastic thing. So, so for me nowadays, I don't need more than a demo of something and a good idea and a great pitch and uh, a good team. You know, like I'm, I'm i at that point. I'm sort of... I really kind of believe a lot like you're investing in the people and their idea.
0: So I would imagine, you know, seeing something built in 24 hours, that's pretty good. Might even be more convincing than seeing something that's been being worked on for six months and ain't that great yet.
1: Yeah. Well, because you might've worked six months on the wrong idea. And, uh, uh, uh there is a, a, a lady who's, who's, I think won the South by South West hackathon like I don't know, three times and she wins mostly chosen is her name. And she's a programmer. And, uh, uh, she is the best at this I've ever seen. She can, I think she works in a small team or by herself. She can basically take these ideas and get something working. And she's always got something working that's interesting at the hackathon. And, uh, uh, and so the reality is, uh, you know, some people really are, it's kind of like rapid prototyping. And I realize now this is a skill that's probably similar to, you know, forming a jam band where you just get together with your friends and start jamming on music. You know, it's, uh, there are people who are really good at this kind of real-time creative process or software. And uh, it's a wonderful thing that there is an opportunity for this. It really also uh, creates a lot of excitement because when you've got a lot of people doing this, with these big hackathons like Southwest, Southwest, the room has got you know, 150 engineering people in there and they're all cranking away all night. Uh, uh, it's a, a super exciting environment that really motivates young people to move from, a lot of them are college students or some are even high school students, move from the realm where they've been working by themselves into the realm of a more, more like in a big company and more in a, a cooperative environment with a lot of other people um you know i kind of feel so, like, so it, of software- like- yeah, go
0: ahead. Sorry. so it seems like winning a hackathon that would be something that would you know catch your attention and you might trust have some trust because the person has competed with other developers are there any other organizations or like companies oh my god they're working with these guys like i know um the guys at recorded future uh you know who recently raised a bunch of money they do um listening platforms for um information operations, you know, they sort of whispered to uh, Wired that they had investment from the CIA and that was like, whoa, these guys are great, you got to check them out. Are there any sort of, you know, organizations that if they had bought from you or aligned with you uh, in your infancy as a tech company would be like, wow. Or even in the music. Building.
1: Well, actually, what I, this is very interesting and something else that's evolved completely from where software was when I started to now. So now the coding. Let's just talk about that. So when I started, you know, Graystone, my co-founder, Steve Sheriff, this was like C-coding, you know, in, we wrote our own, he literally almost wrote his own media operating system off from of scratch and C-code and made that service and, and uh, you know, it was brilliant and amazing. Okay, today these guys are taking a lot of uh, open source and off-the-shelf tools and public APIs from big platforms like Facebook and And they're wiring them together. And so the application of today, first of all, often runs in the cloud and is often a combination of technology and data that they manage inside their cloud-based web server. But then they hook up that web server to all kinds of other APIs across the Internet to get data, to do different tasks, to find out about media, to find out about users. So the business is really... um, uh, uh, change a lot to uh, uh, the point where people are connecting different software modules. There are lots of people working on the open source software modules, and there's all these platforms, GitHub's, you know, a big one. There's a ton of these things, and so when you meet young people today that are just coming out of school or coming into the programming environment, they're fluent with all these tools, and there's 50 of them that I, you know, you know, people use. It's amazing. And what this is a lot of people do is build on the backs of each other and, and make focusing on your idea more important than the plumbing. So you can, like, race the race but not have to build the race car from scratch. You don't need to build a carburetor. You can just buy one or rent one on open source and then modify it to what you want. And that has changed how software is developed. And uh, it really means, frankly, that people who are programmers today or developers, what they call them today, yeah? uh, developers today need to be constantly re-educating themselves on these new tools. They need to be looking at all the stuff. They need to be reading all kinds of blogs online. You know, So when you see these guys, the guys that are good, are constantly learning about new tools and trying new things and often tying these things in their spare time before they try to bring them into the work environment and convince everybody to use the new tool. They've experimented with it for a few months on their own. So that's, that's a big change in how software developers approach a problem versus in my day, I learned the Mac operating system and then I used it to make stuff. And I had some other stuff I put in there, but there weren't just APIs falling out of the sky that I could use.
0: Interesting. You know, as an aside, you know, as AI, you know, grows up, do you think the opportunity for hard coding as a profession will ultimately sunset? I'm not saying that, working with intelligent machines won't always be valuable, but in terms of actually having to write code, do you think that we're, we're approaching the end of that era?
1: Um, it's a very good question. Um, I think that if you have that, I, I've always found, you know, like my, my era of computer knowledge goes back to, you know, assembly language. So I always felt like having an understanding of, how things really work and how things are really built gives you a better handle on understanding efficiency because, you know, we, we, it, it, no matter what, I mean, you know, even though computers are getting faster and cloud services are getting more prevalent and there's never an infinite amount of computing resource because the problem gets so much bigger, you know? So, okay, great. We've got AI. I've got a more powerful computer. Oh my goodness. I have to have, you know, uh, Uh, a neural net database that's, you know, of every consumer behavior of the last 10 years in in the cloud. Well, boy, making that efficient to figure out what I'm going to do with that is going to become a really important thing, or it's just going to cost me a lot of money and also be really slow. So I do feel like having those core skills are still really important, but they're just as important as being up to date on the latest tools. You know, so, uh, you know, I guess I'd say... uh, Uh, The, you know, auto mechanic of today, you know, he uses a computer, figure out what's wrong with the car, but he still needs to know how to use a wrench and a screwdriver.
0: So if you were uh, advising a uh, young person today who's uh, engineering-minded and interested in computer science um, uh, of what sort of um, career they should go into, where do you think the future opportunity is for young people who want to go into computer engineering?
1: Well, I definitely think you already mentioned, you know, so, you know, I'll call it AI, really, what I mean by that is systems that learn from behavior or data. So it's clear that predictive uh, and auto-learning and auto-training systems of various kinds and the ability to do that with a variety of different techniques, those kind of skills are super important for a lot of the new jobs that are out there. So there's that but that doesn't mean if you were to look at video games, there's so many areas of specialization now. Uh, video game development is, you know, there's guys who do the AI, you know, I'll call it the, the computer player that's competing with you. And of that, there's probably 19 different thought processes. You know, just like you might have if you were a human. One guy's managing resources for his game. as AI engine that does that. One that's actually doing the real-time combat with you. And there's another one that's... Uh, trying to figure out, uh, uh, guess predictably what you're doing. And so every area of AI has all these specializations and you can become an expert in those um, for your particular problem set. You know, there's people using AI to generate crowd scenes in movies or AI to generate textures for fabrics. Uh, So, uh, you know, what I would say about it is the core building blocks of tomorrow are some of these AI methodologies, let's call it. And then, as well the cloud-based services and the APIs to build anything. Those, that's kind of the lingua franca today. And somewhere in there, there's scripting. It's you know, probably still worthwhile to take a Python class, even though that's uh, maybe being superseded by other languages in the future. So, you know, I guess I would just say just, you're going to need to have a mix of the, of the hard coding, as you called it, the, the uh, knowledge of processes for intelligent software design, our self-intelligent design and then leveraging systems and things that other people built.
0: Do we live to see AI that truly works, that's can handle natural (laughs) language processing?
1: Uh, Do we live to see it? Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting problems with that. Um, So, you know, obviously self-driving cars is the one you're seeing right now. Um, And, uh, uh, It's a really thorny problem, that self-driving car thing, not just from a safety perspective, but from the fact that um, uh, there's a lot of thorny issues related to programming a computer to drive a car in a world where physical drivers or real drivers, human drivers, are driving aggressively and, frankly, bending the rules. So one of the challenges with AI is, how does AI learn to be creative or aggressive or bend the rules? That's a, that's a tough one. You know, can my self-driving car roll the stop sign? Okay. Can my self-driving car challenge me to get into a lane? So in other words, it's not, there's a guy parallel driving next to me. I need to make the turn, the next turn. So is the self-driving car always going to go up? Can't make it. I guess I got to slow down and then merge in when I can. And quite frankly, in that case, you'll find that the, Human drivers will find those cars to be very frustrating. They will be driving like your grandmother. Um, and so if there are a lot of those cars, this could be very frustrating for the other humans in the system. And so this is one of the challenges we have is is making the AI systems not so predictable and boring to the point where humans avoid them. And, uh, uh, you know, they'll use them, but they'll only use them reluctantly. We want people to use AI systems because they think they're great and because they do an enhancement to the overall experience for consumers, not, not behave at the uh, minimum competency level.
0: How are millennial and boomer CTOs different? How are CTOs from different verticals different? Um, are there any... Uh,
1: oh, is, the, yeah, the boomer and the millennial. So the boomer is, you know, that's my generation. They grew up in the, you know, plan major releases, execute a major release. You know, they're, they're, they they're work in this uh, release software every two weeks uh, incremental mode. They've had to learn that if they want to stay in business, so that's become a new thing for them. Um, they also may not be as quick to adapt to these APIs or open source technologies as as their, the new generation who's built their entire understanding based upon this. So uh, it's really uh, – an example is there's a new database technology called Neo4j. Okay, this is like what Uber's built on. This is cloud-based, you know, database. It's not a relational database. It's really different technology for having a database. And it basically allows something like a Facebook which needs a mass amount of information to be reachable in real time to work that's a completely different way than of developing databases than Oracle or kind of the relational databases. So it's, it's what I would just say is the new tools allow new modalities of thinking and new solutions to be created. That's great. And that's what a new guy might be thinking, but there's still a role for relational databases and, and old iron cranking away for banks for the internal revenue service, you know, Unfortunately, those systems are very efficient for, you know, large amounts of linear data. They're very inefficient for AI-type large amounts of of somewhat uh, uh, relational or vector-based data.
0: Uh, When and how do CTOs like to be introduced to new technology solutions? And when I say when, I mean, you know, is there a rhythm to a, a CTO's day? I mean... Do they tend to, do you tend to answer email at night or in the morning and, or, you know, are you responsive all day long? And you know, our trade shows particularly good cause you're removed from the office. I mean, any generalizations you can make there?
1: I think if you, if you're, you know, you're spending most of your day working with the core engineering team, but you're spending maybe 20% of your week working on the new ideas, and the things that come in the future. So with the R&D team meeting with some, you take, so, you know, how do you fit that in your week? You have to make time every week. Also, you've got to get out in the field. The best way to introduce yourself to new technologies is go meet people outside your company, go see different things, go to conferences or events and hear new people talking about new things. You know, you've got to get out of your office. Uh, human interaction still is, is uh, important. And, uh, uh, Also, as you bring new employees into the company, spend some time with those new employees because they're often coming in with different ideas. Until they become part of the board and they think like all the rest of your guys, there's a little window of time where they come in with a completely different view of how things might be done. It's worthwhile hearing some of that to keep an eye out for something that might be new or a new approach. I
0: always get, um, you know, through, through the course of my life, I've always gotten you know, emails from CTOs at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. Um, and so I have this picture in my head that, you know, they have to go deep into this cave and, you know, figure out these uh, difficult uh, problems. Um, is, is that true, by and large? Are most CTOs night owls? <laughs>
1: well... Uh, this actually, uh, this comes from two factors that have changed, okay? So if you are an engineer who has all your guys sitting in California or in the United States, okay, then you may be able to have a more normal day. But if you're, like most companies, having a global workforce, uh so you've got guys in India, for example, uh, they're starting to fire up and interact with you, you know, between eight and 8 PM at midnight. So a lot of these guys sending emails at midnight have a global operation and they've got people they're interacting with that are overseas. And so the problem is, uh, actually finding time to sleep more than three or four hours. And then you get up and you got to solve some problem. This can be a big life challenge for uh, a global CTO. And, uh, uh, you know, really, once Grace Note got globalized, you know, I my phone was buzzing, and you know there was stuff happening. I could look at that thing any time of day or night, and there'd be something for me to do. And uh, there's always a fire to fight. And Japan, because we were all part of Sony, okay, that's you know they're uh, you know they're at the end of the international conflict so they're like a day and a half you know ahead. So the way that that works is you. Uh, you know, they're, they're great on Friday because they're already in their weekend on Friday. Okay. But by time you wake up on Monday, they're already a day and a half. They're like their Monday was a day and a half ago. And, and the reality is, is that you haven't answered their stuff. You had, there's fires burning in Japan. You know, you wake, you start Monday on fire. If you have a Japanese partner or company, I think this is similarly true if you have somebody in India. So it's, a uh, it's, the problem is, we live in a connected world, and figuring out a way to uh, live your life so that you can you know, do a great job, but also you know, actually get some sleep is a, is a challenge. You're also, you know, it's not sustainable. You can't, you can't really live on three hours of sleep, interrupted, the, you know, uh, and continue to do that for a decade or more. Do
3: you feel frustrated or angry about the state of the country? Do you worry about illegal immigration, Sharia law, or the war on Christmas. Have you ever thought, but don't all lives matter? Or shouldn't the best qualified person get the job? Do you wish people would stop being so politically correct and learn to take a joke? Or maybe you just want to make America great again. If you've experienced any of these symptoms, you may have racism. Other symptoms of racism may include use of words or phrases such as urban, race card, Social Justice Warrior, Let's Build a Wall, Confederate Heritage, Kenya, and I'm Not Racist. Racism affects nearly one in every one people in the world today, but now there's hope. Scientists have discovered a treatment for this unfortunate condition. Introducing Shut the Fuck Up. Studies have shown that shutting the fuck up, along with diet and exercise, can reduce your incidence of being racist by 100%, and helps prevent the transmission of the disease to children and Canadians. Side effects of shutting the fuck up may include listening, learning, not saying stupid shit, noticing racial injustice, developing empathy for your fellow human beings, and dry mouth. Very often, people don't even realize they suffer from this condition, so please, Ask your doctor or any five-year-old child if you have racism and see if shutting the fuck up is right for you. Remember, you don't have to live with the shame of your deeply ingrained social privilege and institutional racism. Just shut the fuck up. Because saying something loudly doesn't mean that you're saying something smart. Shutting the fuck up may also be used to treat similar conditions such as bigotry, homophobia, xenophobia, and sexism. For more symptoms and signs of racism and intolerance, please read Twitter or the comments section of anything.
0: You mentioned earlier, um, you know, no one wants to expend uh, precious engineering resources on anything outside their core competency, at least not a sophisticated company. A sophisticated company would want to outsource whatever horizontal business technology they could and so you know there are so many point solutions out there right now that are sales or marketing or service oriented what's the role of the cto in that type of a purchase um are you pretty much just signing off are you pretty much just saying hey this i like it i don't um and responding to whatever request you get from the person running that part of the company or is it something that you take the lead on
1: well there's some that you might take the lead on so So if there are things that are related to how the I'll call it technology or engineering staff is managing their time or managing their relationship with the customers. This is a whole issue of customer support and customer management. So like, you know, there's a set of your guys who are really on the hook to interact with the customers and solve problems and explain. That's a whole time management, customer management system where they have to work in combination with the salespeople and the finance department to understand what's going on, to to solve the problems for the customers and figure out which customers to give the most attention to and which ones, uh, the way the problems are really impacting uh, the business. So there's tools and systems for that stuff. There's tools and systems for just, you know, managing uh, the data that the company might get. So this is a separate thing, which is, if your company has got data coming from your customers, which is use data, that might be driving finance because they're going to charge for use, or it might be driving sales because, you know, what we often used to do at GraceNote is we would let people have a – and a lot of businesses do this. They give people a test version of the software that they can run essentially for free, and so, you know, the sales guys give out a 1,000 of those, and they see that these 30 guys are really using that test software, Uh, It must have a lot of people play with it, so this must be important to them because they're actually using it versus these 900 tried it for five minutes and never looked at it again. So the reality is let's go talk to people who are really using this. Let's look at those and see if those those are really good sales candidates based on the size of the company, on what they do. And so that data now informs, you know, the sales process. It also is really important post-sales because, you know, if companies license this expensive thing from you, and then you look and you see they're hardly using it. Well, when that renewal comes up, their CFO will be like, look, we didn't use this thing. Uh, we want to not license it anymore. Or worse, they get halfway through their contract. They haven't been using it. And their CFO comes back and says, you've got to give me credits. you got to, you know, I'm not using it. You know, I paid too much. And now the money's coming out of your revenues because you basically didn't use it. Well, what you should have been doing is seeing that that was happening, getting in touch with them early, figuring out why they're not using it, seeing if there's anything you can do, can you help help train them more? What can you do to get them to use the thing that they bought? And uh, so these systems and tools, there are third-party vendors of these kinds of tools and technologies. So in selecting these and making sure that they're working, that's something that the CTO would definitely get involved with. And the CIO and the CTO might work very closely together with that. You know, the CIO typically reports to the CFO, and so... So the finance and internal service systems are something that he manages. And, and, uh, but where it interacts with engineering and where it acts with customers and where it fits data, it's the opportunity to work together.
0: If you think about, like from a salesperson, how they might sequence engaging different people at a B2B for a complex sale, and let's say it's something like sales enablement technology or inbound marketing or content management, uh, content management um, services, you know these are all pretty run-of-the-mill standard services and let's say they all do satisfy whatever interoperability and security uh, you know um, requirements you may have at what point does the CTO get involved in that, that sh- should the salesperson delivering that product to um, the sales department or the marketing department uh, or the service department should they be selling it to those departments or should they be selling it to the CTOs and in what order
1: well, they're going to need to do both. They should be using, like I mentioned, if they can, and if the account's worth it, they should be using their CTO to make a CTO-to-CTO connection. That's the first thing, okay? Because then that CTO can say, look, I'm in charge of the engineering of this stuff, uh, and, you know, I'm the guy who's buying the thing. I'm like, great. Now, the thing is mostly what I want, but there's these, like, 10 things that I really would like you to fix over the over our relationship, and so, so that's something where, you know, if you have CTO to CTO, that's a great way to make that connection and, and, uh, support the sales efforts. So the problem is the CTO can't spend a lot of his time on that, but a little bit of a connection. I used to always say, you know, um, to the other guy I'm selling to, you know, okay, you met me, like I'm really busy, you know, that you're really busy, but you've got the silver bullet, you know, or you've got the backbone. And, uh, so one, you're really in trouble. Are the chips are down? Pick up that phone and call me. Just don't use it too often. And uh, that really helped because they would like, "Oh, that's awesome!" You know, basically, I'm not just left dealing with a sales guy who, once I buy the thing, you know, runs away. They think, you know, the other thing is you really do need to have salespeople who are continuously involved and in feeding back stuff to the other CTO about how things are going. And so, um, anyways, in the in the sales process, I would always get in there early. I found also, you know, who am I selling? If I'm selling technology, which is what a lot of what I did, I'm selling the technology to their other company's CEO and their head of sales who wants to make new sales. They want to expand the number of customers they have. So my goal is to, exp- to explain to them that if they work with my thing, it will enhance their internal capability to get them new customers and new revenues. And, and not only that, oftentimes I would go on a joint sales mission we would go out, Grace Note would go out with our customers and sell their customers. And uh, uh, for big companies and for big opportunities, I'd do that. And uh, that was very effective, essentially. And a lot of times, maybe these companies don't have me and maybe I have some domain expertise. And I'm compelling. And so I would go out there and, you know, help them make their sale so they can pay me for the thing I'm doing. Best tech
0: pitch. For a, for a complex sale that you've ever received? <laughs>
1: uh, okay, well, uh, uh, best, best uh, complex sale. Well, I would have to say this. Uh, you know, when we were working with Apple and, you know, with Steve Jobs, uh, you know, uh, he was introducing the iPod that had the color screen, okay? But he didn't want to tell us he was doing that. In fact, he couldn't tell us anything about the product. And so the pitch was to go down to meet with Steve, and he'd say, look, you got to buy a lot more servers. we are like, well, why don't we need to buy servers? Well, I'm coming out with something. Okay, we well, you're coming out with something. When are you coming out with it? I can't tell you. Okay, you're coming out with something, but I can't tell you. Well, soon. All right, soon. Is that like three months or six months? Uh, I can't tell you. Okay. This is before they had standardized release days. <laughs> uh, okay, so if I get these things ready by the fall, is that good? Yes, that's good. All right, well, now our mind we're thinking he's coming out with something at Christmas time. Okay, good. All right, what do we want me to do? Well, I want you to get all of the album covers. You mean the jacket covers of all the albums? Yes, I need them all. Okay. Uh, Well, all is a lot. There's a lot of music in the world. I don't think we can get all. We have to work on it, and we only have a few months. We can get you lunch. Well, get me everything you can get. (laughs) Okay. And then just tell me what it's going to cost. Okay. That's great. We'll tell you what it's going to cost. So you want us to kind of get like an unknown amount of stuff and kind of an unknown time, but as much as you can and just tell you what you're going to cost. Well, that's, that's a complicated equation. He says, I know you'll figure it out. And we did. But the reality is, uh, the customer doesn't always actually know what they want and they don't have enough detail when they're leading the market. Like he was frequently with his products. He was really pushing the envelope on every area. And, uh, so the key was to engage and figure it out in real time. And these turned out to be big benefits for the company. Of getting to work with Apple, of course, and certainly getting to work with him. Um, uh, he was unique in that way, but there have been other companies like car companies and things like that who have asked similar things to the company. And uh, uh, this is really where you need that great engineering team. You go back and you say, okay, it's for Apple. And they we need this kind of a thing. And we don't really have that. How do we do it? And, your guys all go, we'll do it. We'll figure it out. Versus, oh, I don't know. It's not on my roadmap. I don't think I can get it done this week. Uh, I'll put a request in and I'll let you know that's not really how you work with a guy like Steve Jobs. Uh, So, you know, uh, uh, having your team that's got your back that's our can-do guys, and then they'll do some damage control because something else is going to have to be delayed, you know. But what's impact is this going to have on the other customers? Well, we've got to get this thing out the door, but we should have time and we can delay this a little bit and we can get, and they start problem solving to figure out how to make the time available to solve the problem for the big customer. So, you know, that's a complicated sale. You're moving things around in your roadmap. You're responding to a customer who can't really define what they want. And, uh, and uh, you're trying to make everybody happy enough. By the way, that's a very important thing as CTO. You'll never, everybody's not all happy all at the same time. There's degrees of happiness. In fact, we had a client management sheet we used to run around the company with, and the, uh, the lady who ran that group in our company, she had smiley faces, and we would have different smiley faces indicating the current customer happiness level. And when they were turning red and unhappy, like an emoji, we would be like very concerned. For them. But if a lot of them were in green, and a few were in yellow, and maybe a couple were in red, okay, that was normal. And uh, that's just how life is in the world of software. So of your,
0: you know, through, through through your experience and your years in business, you know, what, can can you think of one unexpected, complex technology pur- purchase that you made, something you had no intention of buying, but you heard about it and it was so compelling you had to have it?
1: Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, originally, we we had three evolutions of uh, of the, of the Graysnode database. You know, we had this thing that we built ourselves that was built essentially on uh, freeware, shareware stuff that we were able to get our hands on. Then Oracle came in and convinced us to build this giant thing on Oracle that was actually a mistake and cost us a lot of money and time and energy. And then eventually we started to realize that we could do this stuff with open source technology. This became evolving. And in the process of that, there was various database products and various network products that we could license, you know, rather than, than, uh, use. And so, so the reality is MySQL, Berkeley DB, these kinds of things, Linux, this stuff all became available, And we could get Linux for free, but we could also license it from companies that had services and support around it, like Red Hat and others. And so what I found is, is that it was better to get even an open source thing that had support and people working on it so that I could get some support from my guys so they didn't have to figure everything out themselves. And that's one of the challenges with open source right now is that the community kind of works on it, and it's a little bit of a problem. If there's a problem in there, you don't know if the community is going to solve the problem. So that's one of the challenges with open source is that, you know, that's where service and support becomes important. So in database, core database technology, we preferred to get somebody that provided some service and support. That was a good sales pitch. You know, it's
0: it's funny. um, uh, uh, Automatic announced today, um, we're talking on the 19th of September, 2019, uh, they closed a $300 million round. The guys behind WordPress, automatic.
1: Yep. That is so. That particular platform, I think, runs a majority of small businesses on the internet. And
0: uh, no, not even just small. A lot of big organizations use it too. A
1: lot of big organizations, but you know, they're not like Grace where it's a custom database application. This allows you to transact and have a relationship with your customers publish your data, create all the information about your company, manage your customer relationships, have events, have blogs, all this kind of stuff are kind of like standard modules within their platform. And then not only that, I think they have like 300 or 400 third-party companies that make plugins to their thing that do everything else. So that's a very interesting uh, aspect of that business. Essentially, the internet web site i'll call it that's not really they do more than that website as an operating system and a platform and that's really what that company has and uh uh it's taken them by the way they didn't working on that for more than a decade but the reality is is that they they've they've created uh you know the windows operating system uh for, that's more open frankly uh for web applications and uh, maybe they're one of the dominant players in that space. There's lots of other guys on different platforms, but they might be the most dominant one. Great example of building an indispensable, flexible tool with customer service as you need it. Rich, rich array of third parties working with you. You know that's the playbook for you know what a operating system really is.
0: Tell me the most, the smartest, best, complex technology purchase you ever made.
1: Uh, uh, let's see what is that well uh, it wasn't a purchase it was it was a it was first a partnership that then turned into an acquisition and the acquisition was actually not us acquiring it was us being acquired so I'll talk about this so basically when we were at Grace our primary initial product was music and when we became part of Sony, they started to ask us to work on video, because of course televisions and Blu-rays, and they had various video products. And they had a company that had been building a European television guide database, which is actually a very sophisticated thing, you know, having all the shows and the times and all the different regions of different European company countries. So you can imagine knowing what shows are on every channel across a diverse set of countries and languages. And so we got this thing inserted into Greystone, and now we are in the video business. We didn't really have a U.S. database, but we found out that there were these guys in the United States, the Tribune Corporation, who had been building a television database, primarily for the Tribune newspapers, which was the paper guide that came in the newspaper. Tribune the TV
0: hated. data. I remember them well.
1: Yeah. Well, it turns out that the newspaper side of it became – like an ancillary business, that was the business when they did this. And they had been doing this, by the way, I will say this, multi-generationally. When we went to meet with them for the first time, we found that they had 500-plus people in upstate New York. And they had been editing this television data and working on it. And, you know, the Grace Note database for music was highly variable. Some of it came from, from the record label. Some of it came from the users, Some of it was came from the Internet. And so the quality of it was, was mixed, from very high quality, but the most popular stuff, to just really anything we could get on music of the world that really there was no information on. When we got to meet these Tribune guys, we found out that they had literally a perfect database about every television program that had ever been broadcast in the last 30 years. And there were people working at the company, editorial people working on the data. and Not only were they working there, but their kids were working there. <laughs> and... And they, they both were working there, the parents and the kids. They had been working on this so long, which was very unusual you know, in the Internet business. That is happening today, probably Google, but was not you know, been around long enough. But nowadays, that was really interesting. And so, you know, we were, we were like, oh, well, so how, um, how popular is this data? Oh, well, we licensed the data to the cable television market, you know, all the cable TV providers, most of them, anyways. And we were like, wow, that's really amazing. So cable television runs off this data. Yes, it does. And they were like, you know, but our problem is we don't have a sales force that's global. We're kind of here in New York. And we said, hey, we have a global sales force. We'll sell your data. So we just started out selling their data, and it turned out we sold it really well. And eventually, we were selling most of their data to people all over the world. And eventually, the Tribune Corporation got reorganized, and they were like, who are these Grace Note guys that are selling our TV data? Why don't we do this? Well, they have a global company, and they blah, blah, blah. And Tribune then turned around and bought Gracenote from Sony and took the database and put it into Gracenote, and then we became one company. We became Tribune Data Systems. So at that point, we had the best music database, the best movie database, and then we then Tribune acquired sports, and pretty soon we had sports, movies, music, and television. And uh, that company stayed in Tribune for a while, and now I think uh, Nielsen owns that company, and so so they have the most global broadest database of all this information in the world and it powers most of television most of music most automobiles they really it's really uh, broadly distributed with a broad customer base and uh, that was exciting to really to really be able to move across genres from music into TV and movies and then for me into sports which was a whole new area of sports information uh, and that was exciting and uh, uh, you know I think You know, this is also the power of data and learning how to to work with other people who had very different uh, viewpoints about data quality and also what they cared about. And, uh, uh, like, for example, uh, in music, we never rated the music. We didn't say this Pearl Jam album is better than this one. But in television shows, it's all about the tomato meter. So, you know, these things have, like, stars and ratings and things. We, we thought that, you know, who were we at Graystone to tell you what music was good? But when we got to Tribune, they were like, well, of course we have to tell you what programs are good because there's too much to watch. So, again, very different viewpoint of, you know, what the job role was for the data versus maybe how we thought about it with music.
0: Ty, thanks for taking the time to do this. Final question, okay? And we may role-play this a bit, but I'm a, a media buyer, And I am going to buy psychographic. I'm going to put together a psychographic profile to advertise to that's going to try to get in front of CTOs. How would I define or profile CTOs psychographically?
1: Okay. That's really interesting because, you know, this is the the world of today. So the two things about that were, would be, you know, you really need to figure out the guy you're selling to, what kind, What? why does he need this data? What is the demographics of his customer that's actually important? So I'm gonna use music as an example. The most popular form of music today is hip hop, okay? And hip hop music actually is very broad based now across a broad consumer demographic, but the consumers that like hip hop are very tuned into culture and very tuned into what's happening today. So they're kind of a description of a person who really is like looking and reading a lot on social media and is very up to speed with the latest trends and activities. So understanding how a consumer interacts with the world. Are they really interested in the latest things that are happening, or are they really interested in things of the past that you're trying to get them to re-remember? So a different set of music consumers might be the guys that would be interested in the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, okay? You know, that's actually a little bit more of my generation. And for them, it's about what are the artists that I love from the past doing today? So a challenge is figuring out how those consumers interact with the world and coming with a set of data that really describes their behavior. And and that behavior then leads me to how I might best reach them. So, uh, you know, hip hop fans, maybe they like read these online blogs, XXL, uh, you know, this is a blog that's for, you know, basically hip hop people, uh, that may be a new media source that you would want to be recommending that we advertise in, or your data is going to prove that people are there looking at this. It'd be great if you could them-
0: just be great if you could just buy hip hop people. Like you think that's a demographic profile, Like like a box, like a track. You know,
1: the problem is it's so broad now. But what, what, like if wanna, what if I want to, what if I want to target the people.
0: psychographic of a CTO? What, can you define psychographically that group?
1: Oh, um, well, that's an interesting question. If you want to, if you want to reach the CTO, yeah. well, yeah. you know, the, I want to get front of the problem-
0: CTO. There's I'm going to, I'm going to psychographic profiling. Hard. How do I do it?
1: How do you do that? Um, Okay, well, so, so the problem really is is that there are CTOs of every age. I'm actually working with a young company, the CTO. He's 25, I think, if he might be 24. Uh, so, uh, And he's really good at what he does. And so the reality is, is that it's a little bit challenging because, because if I want to reach this young guy, then I've got to be in there talking about the lang- – I'm going to be talking Neo4j and the latest tools on the Internet – if I want to reach somebody that's maybe five, ten years older, Ruby on Rails. That was the tool kind of five years you know, ago. It was really new seven years ago or ten years ago. So speaking the right language about the tools and technologies that fit the interests and the team of, of people is really, really, really important. Um, and and that's, that's the first thing that's important. And then the second thing is the development process, which we mentioned. You have to be providing tools and that to fit their development process. You're going to be revving your thing every couple weeks. If they're revving their thing every couple of weeks, um, uh, if you're like a guy, if you're selling security, these guys really are wanting to have constant updates all the time because people are coming up with new exploits every 10 minutes. Uh, versus, uh, if this is a if this is a big system that's interacting with financials. The revision time might be more of it's once a quarter or once every six months so what i would just say about it is know the customer how he works and what tools he uses and uh great questions to ask right away and actually what tools they use themselves that they knew from the past because maybe you're selling something new and you're going to have to explain it to them in terminology that they understand
0: Ty Roberts, thank you so much for taking the time to do this.
1: No problem, Eric. It's always great to talk. Call me anytime.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.